0: You can see in your bulletin that we have just a whole lot of scripture in there, and some information. Um, We are going to be uh, going through that and talking about that um, as a part of the message. And with this day being Worldwide Communion Sunday, as we focus on the universality of God's love, it's also a perfect time for us to focus on the universality of our faith, as well. And these are two things that I believe are, we are desperately in need of in our world and the situation that we're in today with so many different things, world that is filled with so many divisions and so much us against them mentality, which as we will see is the polar opposite of our faith. Our faith whose emphasis right from the very beginning, which is a beautiful thing, literally, from the very first book in the Bible, from Genesis, which actually means beginning, right off the bat, tells us that God created all of humanity in God's image. So not just some, not just people who look like us or believe like us, and not just the people in our own country, for people who may have the same education or speak the same language or have the same citizenship, but we're told right from the start of our faith, 2,500 years before Jesus, that God created all of humanity in God's own image. And so, in fact, from that moment, we're all united. We're all one in God, and any divisions that have occurred since then have been created by us. That's on us. That's not God. In God we are one. And another beautiful thing is that this is also part of the core understandings of many of our major global faiths as well, it's true for Christianity, it's true in Judaism, Hinduism, Islam. Taoism, Confucianism, Jainism. Now Buddhism, which doesn't consider itself a religion, it's not, uh, it's a philosophy, it's a way of living, but that's the message there also, that we're all one. And the ethic, there's an ethic that flows out of that. It's not just a nice thought. The ethic that flows out of this is that because we're all one, you say, therefore what? Well, therefore, we would naturally love one another, and care for one another, right? And one of the things that I love about our world, too, is that adding to the list of major faiths that recognize our oneness and our interconnectedness is also now the field of science as well. Quantum physics, you know that I like to talk about that sometimes. Starting with the Big Bang, they recognize we all came from the one source, and as such, we are all interconnected that way too. That was actually proven in 1997, Hadron Collider, But on the quantum level of which we are all part, makes up everything who we are, that every piece of matter in the quantum level is instantaneously connected from one end of the universe to the other. That's pretty cool. Edgar Mitchell, <clears throat> in the field of, of science, and He was one uh, name you maybe all recognize, hopefully, but one of the first astronauts to see the Earth from outer space, and this was an experience that blew his mind. It blew his mind, and and when he came back, and during that moment, he was transformed. It was an epiphany. So he said this describing his experience from Apollo 14. He he wrote, when looking at the Earth and seeing this blue and white planet floating there, set in the background of very deep, black, velvety cosmos, seeing, rather knowing for sure that there was a, purposefulness of flow, of energy, of time, of space in the cosmos, that it was beyond man's rational ability to understand, and suddenly, he said, there was a very deep gut feeling that something was different. And on the return trip home, gazing through 240,000 miles of space towards the stars and the planet from which I had come, he wrote, I suddenly experienced the universe as intelligent, loving, harmonious. You develop an instant global consciousness, he said, a people orientation, and an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world. And the compulsion, he wrote, to do something about it. From out there on the moon, he said, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that, you blankety blank. End quote. <laughs> the big blue marble doesn't have any dividing boundaries between human beings those are things that we've created not god same thing that the world's major religions have been saying for thousands of years i feel your pain <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm sorry so we've been saying this. It's right on cue, so. so we've been saying this collectively for thousands and thousands of years, but now comes the confession part. Because even though all the major world religions have been saying this about our oneness, this is the core of our faith. For thousands of years we've actually failed at doing a better job of living it. And we know that. So while the understanding part is there, don't blame the faiths for falling short. That's on us. That's on the people. Because while it seems like this is a universal understanding and even though it's there in all the major faiths, it's there in our science, it definitely has not been there as we know in the heart of our politics, not just talking about us, talking about everybody, our voting, It hasn't been at the heart of our national and international powers and principalities. All of us. It isn't at the heart of our global environmental policy around the world. Even though it's in all major religions, I don't think this message is even in the heart of our educational system. And certainly not in our media and television, music, movies. So this message of love and unity, seemingly universal, seemingly common sense, is actually far from it. Because while our faith says one thing, human beings, our base instinct, what is our base instinct? We know our base instinct. Our base instinct is to gather all the nuts for ourselves and then keep them and protect our tribe. And you know what, as a tribal group, we do a great job at at, 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 at training each other to name and to dissect and to divide ourselves from each other, right? Why in order to protect our tribe? You're in, I'm out. You're part of my tribe, you're part of my tribe, you're not. So we have all over the place, we have my team and we have your team. We have who's at the top of the class and then who's next and then who's next after that. We have my political party and we have your political party. And as we all know, mine is all right and yours is stupid. (laughs) Yours is all wrong, whatever that is. We have my country and we have your country. We have my school versus your school. We have my company versus your company. And you can almost hear the primitive grunting and scratching and chest beating and all of this in the background, right? And let's not cut ourselves. Even with the most refined and sophisticated of us, we even have subtle little tribal cues of my fashion sense and your fashion sense. That is so last season. <laughs> Sophisticated grunting and scratching. (laughs) Just other ways to separate and divide. So many ways of creating us and them. So, what do we do with some of us? We return to our faiths again and again as we are now to try again and we remember establish our spiritual priorities when we go, ah, that's right. Ah, yes, that's right. Now I remember. God created humanity. God didn't create this humanity and that humanity. And you know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about last Sunday, Mission Sunday. Mission Sunday. Now those of you who were there, great. I'll get this. Those of you who weren't there, I really highly recommend go back on, on the YouTube channel and go watch it. Go watch it. Because as we celebrated Mission Sunday, we got to spend some just, just really exquisite face-to-face time with our mission partners. Um, and those are the people who we get to be in partnership with that do so much to help so many tens of thousands who we get to connect with through our church, through our giving, through our love, who well, you with. And this is such a beautiful expression of what humanity, what we can be as humanity at our best, right? This is who we are at our best. What a wonderful expression, too, of our, of our faith. This is what our faith looks like when we are at our best, as God envisioned. And I was thinking, you know, it's like our scripture passages from today were just, just lifted up off of the page and, and came to life. Those passages, the passage that says everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. Saying it's how we actually love or not that connects us with God and with each other. Passage that says God is love. Wow, that's simple. That's universal. Whoever lives in love lives in God. Whoever, whoever, we too quickly gloss over that word, whoever, and we go, whoever, really? Whoever lives in love, lives in God, and God in them, like, whoever, whoever, like, like you mean, like the Buddhists and Muslims and, and, and non-believers? Whereas Jesus said it in slightly different words. He said, I, I am in my Father. I'm in God. Father's in me, God's in me. Love is in me, I am in you. At the heart of it all is love. So, if God is love, and Christ is love, Because God and Christ are one, I and my Father are one, said Jesus. What then do you think he's saying and meaning in that very first passage of Scripture that we have there in the bulletin? This passage of Scripture that has been so misused and abused misunderstood for centuries, not to unite us, but often used to judge others and used as a spiritual stick and to place ourselves at the exclusive best and to place others as less than or even worse, sometimes, oftentimes, inconsequential. And this has caused wars, conquest, and this has caused oppression, and so you go, is that what Jesus had in mind? When, you know, with God is love, and whoever loves lives in God, and God lives in them? So if God is love and Christ is love, and because God and Christ are one, what is he saying here? when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to the Father but by me. Because for decades, I heard that and I go, man, you know, it sounds awfully exclusive. Awfully exclusionary. One right way, superior to all others. What did he mean by those words? Not what did St. Paul, how did St. Paul interpret these words later, not how did the Christian church interpret them and use them over the centuries for various reasons, but what did Jesus, who had a certain orientation, mean by those words? And how do we know? Well, thankfully, You know, when you take a minute to try to understand his thoughts and his words, you find that the meaning is really unambiguous. When we take a moment to consider how Jesus understood himself and how he understood God, and what I mean by that is when Jesus uses the word I, we all use the word I. But when he used the word I to describe himself as I in I am the way, what does he mean by I? And you have to understand how he understood himself. Compared to, let's say when you and I use that word I and me, we are thinking and referring to all sorts of things. Describing ourselves in certain ways. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing is how did he understand God? Fortunately for us us, we have all this information right there, you have this right here in the scripture. And you actually have a summary of this at the bottom of the first section, and it goes like this. To begin with, when Jesus thought of himself, what did he identify with? Things that we do? Physical attributes? Is he tall? Handsome? Athletic? Overweight? Did he think of his accomplishments like we do? how successful he was, his trophies, business successes, financial status? Did he think of himself in terms of his alma mater, you know, first in class of the year 0018? You know, did he personally identify with, with his birth location, with Jesus of Nazareth, we use this term?
1: The interesting thing
0: is that, you know what, other people referred to him as this, Jesus of Nazareth. He never referred to himself with any of these things. Other people did, and other people did, just like saying, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph, so they could have certain descriptors to know, are we talking about the same person here? Is that Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, son of Joseph? He never referred to himself as this. Why? Because that's not how he thought of himself. As, far as that goes, he didn't even identify with his family of origin. It's true. Somebody <clears throat> said to him when he was in Capernaum, houses crowded on the outside, and somebody said, Jesus, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside there waiting for you. And he said, Who are my mother and brother and, and, and sisters? He said, Anyone who does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. That's what he identified with. One, being a child of God. Two, being a follower of God. Three, being one with God, I and my father are one. Very, very different than how we think of ourselves and how we use the word I. So that's why we have misunderstood that's we think in terms of what we identify with and project that onto him and go, well, he must be referring to that then, too. We need to listen to what he says. We think in terms of our personal history, what makes us unique, what differentiates us from others, are we better or are we worse, how's our ego, what's our accomplishments, things that actually kind of violence, but when he uses the word I, he only understands himself to be God's child, son of God, one with God, one with love, God being the Father. And God the Father is not his exclusive God. It's the exact opposite. What he wanted to do was to make God as accessible and available to everyone. That's not the way it was before in Israel with the chosen people, a certain group. He's like, no. It's your God. It's everybody's God. We're all together. This is why, actually, we have, this is why he used the bread and he used the wine. Were they the certain sacrificial animals that you had to go and buy at a certain place and blemished and, you know, these qualifications and those qualifications? No. He used bread and wine because they're universal, because they're common with communion, common union. The exact opposite of exclusive. These elements, he used them because they were so common. They were in every home, rich or poor, unesoteric, as you can get, on every table. Giving the message symbolically, God is available and God is universal to all. So sometimes he would say, my father, and then he also taught us to say, what? Our father. All of ours. Everyone's God. We're all children of God. From the very beginning, we're all connected. As inclusive as you can get. So he only understands himself with this universal identity. And how did he understand God? Very simple. God is what? is love. That's the unwavering understanding. This is what he pounded away at. This is what he finessed. This is what what he created parables about. And most of all, he lived this in a million different ways. God is love. So because God is love. And because Jesus understands himself to be one with God, I and my Father are one, as love incarnate, he uses the term I In that way, including and incorporating all of these things, I am love, God is love. So when he says, I am the way, he's not all of a sudden being opposite and exclusive when everywhere else he's being inclusive, but he's saying love is the way, I love and the way. I love and the truth. Love is the way. Love is the truth. Love is the life. Nobody comes to God but by love. And that's not some new age spin. <laughs> that's as orthodox and as conservative as you can possibly get because it's coming right from him. This is as old as it gets. God is love. Love is the way, the truth, and life. Universal, accessible, open, worldwide. And that is how he wants us to live. And suddenly, you realize that what has been misused and abused by humans for their own purposes for millennia, setting ourselves apart and above and exclusive, was actually intended by Jesus instead to draw us together as one. Anyone who loves is of God and knows God. That is the universal Christ. The universal, accessible God. Finally, just quickly, just to make sure that this couldn't ever be misconstrued, he then created a parable of the Good Samaritan that you have on on the next page. You can read this on your own. Again, it drives home the point that it's not the person who belongs to the right faith group, the priest, or has the right heritage, the Levite, also Jewish. It's not the person who honors God in those ways. It's the Samaritan. The Samaritan isn't even a follower of Jesus, and he's telling the story. Samaritans were farmers. They were understood to be blasphemers, heretics, outsiders, despised by any people of faith. They weren't Jesus' people, and they weren't followers of the Jewish God. But it's this complete outsider to any faith by design, according to Jesus, who is the only one he lifts up who acts in love. And this is the one who he told us we should model ourselves after. Oh, do likewise, he says. And so in our world that's so full of divisions and competition, so focused on who's better, who's worse, who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't, it actually comes down to who loves their fellow human being. And with our world being in the shape that it's in, I actually think that this is our greatest hope. For universal salvation considering who and what actually helps the human condition the most love is the way the truth and the life let that be our doctrine let that be our unity let that be our strength let that be our action amen